Hi, everybody. It's Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Filming in war zones has been a badge of honor among photojournalists and documentarians for as long as it's been possible. But it's also dangerous and potentially even deadly, as the documentary community was reminded of in recent years with the tragic loss of Sundance-winning Restrepo director Tim Hetherington, who was killed while covering the Libyan Civil War. And yet, intrepid storytellers keep on entering these situations. So how does one prepare for such a production, both practically and emotionally? My two guests today can help answer these questions from recent personal experiences. Nathan Fitch embedded with the U.S. military in Afghanistan for his film Island Soldier, and Daniel McCabe filmed amidst various factions of the Congolese Civil War for six years for his documentary This Is Congo. I spoke with the directors before their film screened at America's largest documentary festival, Doc NYC, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing about their experiences and the advice they have about what gear makes sense to bring into a conflict and how to shoot while you're literally being shot at. By the way, it may sound at times like we're recording in a war zone, but that's in fact downtown Brooklyn construction. Apologies in advance for the occasional background drilling. Hello. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. Can you guys uh, start just by introducing yourselves and telling us the names of your films? Hi, my name's uh, Daniel McCabe. I'm the director of This Is Congo. My name is Nathan Fitch. Um, I'm the director of Island Soldier. So first of all, you've done it a million times, but can you give us kind of the log line? Tell us just what your film is about and where it was shot. Uh, my film's about four characters' lives amongst war uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, and it was shot in the Congo. Um, Island Soldier explores the high um, enlistment rates of people from Micronesia in the U.S. military. And it was filmed filmed in Micronesia, and I filmed in Afghanistan, and then military bases around the U.S. And so how did each of you get involved in these projects in the first place? Well, this is my first film. Prior to this, I was a photojournalist. So I was based in East Africa working as a, a freelance photojournalist. And in 2008, I had gone in to cover a conflict, uh, what was commonly known as the CNDP war in the Congo. And, uh, and that was my first time there, and I kind of got bit by the bug and just decided to focus specifically there. What was it about the Congo that attracted you? It was like Narnia on acid. It's like Congo is this other place where, uh, different than other African conflicts that I've that I've worked in, it's this has a different flavor. I mean, the the country's so. Uh, so balkanized in terms of its military and, and these, these armed groups, and, and it's so vast, and, and you have all these, these resources that are fueling it that I think kind of initially drew me in, but in reality, the story is so much bigger than the resources. Well, that's kind of what's perpetuating it. It's, uh, it's a real confusing, wild ride that, uh, that I just felt compelled to, to focus more on, and it's undercovered. Um. I came to the subject of Island Soldier after I f- finished undergrad. I I'd gotten kind of burned out with art school, and so I decided I wanted to like have a an experience living outside of the U.S. So I joined the Peace Corps and lived in Micronesia for two years. And my my job there was historic preservation. So I was essentially going around doing photography and video to sort of 
the islands have had a lot of uh, colonial waves of people and they've lost a lot of their traditional culture. So there's a push to kind of preserve the last um, remaining kind of parts of that. Um, and then while I was there, I was also working with young people on the island who were interested in art. And I started to see one of my friends uh, was recruited and left the island and went on a tour and came back about a year later. And there was just this incredible change in him. Um, and I guess it planted a seed, and it's, that was a while ago, but I started thinking, like, what is it like to go from one of the most remote, peaceful, beautiful islands to war? And then what is it like to come back? And that was kind of the, the seed of the project. And you both did something that could be considered being embedded with various factions that you covered. But what, is, what does that sort of concept of embedded mean in relation to your project? Like, how did you consider yourself embedded with people at involved in these conflicts? Well, initially, I'd set out uh, with kind of a shotgun spray uh, scenario where I was, I was looking at different armed groups, and uh, among them was the, the National Army, which is really tough, almost impossible to get, like, real access to, aside from just some kind of uh, pre-made, uh, pre-packaged interview or whatever. Uh, and just by chance, I had gotten the opportunity to uh, to. I guess what we'll, we'll call embed. Uh, I had gotten in close with a, a group of soldiers, and then we we put in the work to to get the clearances, which is really difficult. And uh, uh, I guess for me, I, it's in my mind, it wasn't like the traditional embed that uh, that many photographer colleagues of mine do uh, in the around the world. Uh, it's a little more loose in Congo, so uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess you can call it an embed. Uh, for me, it was like just hanging out with a bunch of guys that uh, that had this this pocket I could kind of sit in and, and observe from. So we'll get to Nathan in a sec, but in Nathan's case, he was sort of with one group of soldiers, and he was with the sort of the American army. In your case, you you actually managed to portray the conflict from several different perspective. So how did you get in with different groups? Like, did they know that you had also filmed with the other groups? Yeah, yeah, I see where you're going. Uh, you know, Congo's a special place where there's there's like hundreds of armed groups and, and dozens and dozens of front lines and all these different micro conflicts that are happening. So uh, journalists hover around and, and, and these different armed groups often want the platform. So it's not as hard as it might seem to, to go and meet with armed groups and, and to get their, uh, you know, to get them to stand up on their soapboxes. Uh, but what was really difficult was to get, you know, embedded with them in a real way where you could, they could relax and, and you could start really being a part of their real life. And that, uh, that didn't really happen until I started working with the National Army. And, and the way I got in with them was, Coincidentally, I was arrested by uh, the main character in my film. Wow. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> once we were uh, brought back to this kind of a makeshift outpost, we were waiting for a, a commanding officer to come and, and hand us down our, our fate, uh, as it were, uh, because we had been crossing from one armed group's uh, control, uh, an FDLR-controlled area, which is this armed group, uh, and uh, and traveling too late at night. Long story short, the commanding officer comes in, happens to be an old childhood friend of my field producer, 
so then we just we hit it off and and the rest kind of fell into place unbelievable it's like you know with docs it's always stranger than fiction totally and nathan you had the more what we might consider traditional embed you went through a formal process so tell us about that i would say in my film there was the embedding in a foreign culture and living living abroad um, in this, on this island and becoming close with the people so that when I showed up with a camera, you know, during a funeral, the people would accept me. During these, like, difficult moments, I, I had the access built in. I learned the language. I, I really had that access sort of because I had spent time there. Um, so, so, yeah, for my film, I really felt like it was vital. I, I already had captured kind of the island. The islands are just lush and green and beautiful, and I really felt like I needed to juxtapose that with with the footage from a war zone. So I went through the process of requesting an embed with the U.S. Army, and I wrote about it um, for No Film School. But I, if you are doing that with a film, you have to sign a production association agreement. So I did that and then went over and spent about three weeks on a Ford operating base outside of Kandahar, um, essentially going out with a group of guys looking for IEDs every day. Um, so that was, that was my, it was interesting. I, I knew Tim Hetherington. He had shared an office in a, a photographer's studio that I used to work in, in, uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yards. And I think going into my embed, I had like Restrepo in my head and I thought it was going to be like tiny, a tiny base on the side of a mountain and firefights every day. And by the time I got to Afghanistan in 2000, I guess the end of 2013, um, the war had just shifted. Those bases were closed, and um, the soldiers weren't really even getting out of their vehicles when I got there because someone had lost their legs a couple weeks earlier by stepping on a landmine. So, I mean, that's where the stuff gets really real. We'll get more into that, but stepping back, um, for any doc, you really there's all sorts of preparation that has to happen. But in this case, um, like when shooting in a, a war zone, it seems like there might be some special prep sort of emotionally and physically you can't bring everything so could you speak to both of those things one is how do you um, prepare yourself kind of to gird yourself to get into a, a potentially crazy situation and two is what do you actually bring when you can't bring a whole production truck or whatever yeah you know I think I kind of had a an advantage um by the time in, in my film where you start to see uh the fruits of that kind of embedding and access uh, on the front lines, it's a few years into my chasing front lines and working with these armed groups. So, uh, so in terms of mental preparation, I really, there was no prep needed. I was almost, uh, it was almost counterproductive where I was just so thirsty for that access that was impossible. That by the time it actually happened, there wasn't even a hesitation or question, perhaps, or I mean, fortunately, not to my own, you know, fault. Or demise, but uh, in terms of equipment, you know, I, I shot I shot on a Canon 5D with a glide cam, just a couple of lenses, packed the batteries that I needed, water. Uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, it, it really becomes about uh, about the weight you're carrying because we'd be out maybe 10, 20 miles uh, from any kind of real uh, base or, or anything like that. So. And these guys that I was with, they'll they'll go days and days without eating and or drinking water. So it was that prep for me was was more about it. And then over the years I was working, uh, and then over the 
it was probably maybe seven or eight months of, of real uh, conflict coverage, uh, you know, I, I tweaked my kit. I initially started going out and bringing more lenses and then, like, you're using them less so you, you figure out different, you know, different ways of using less gear. Uh, so for me, it was just about figuring out how to get the weight down because mm. the stuff's heavy. And what about um, physical protection, like a bulletproof vest, or did you have anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I didn't have any body armor or any of that. Uh, uh, I, I should have, in hindsight, I, I probably would, although because of the distances we were covering and because of the unit I was with, it, I didn't really want that. It kind of created a barrier uh, had I done that because all the men I'm with don't have body armor, and and uh, because of the, the cultural barrier, uh, I guess is the easy way of me putting it, you know, I don't, I don't need to put on body armor and then get shot by the guys I'm with so they can take my body armor. So, uh, so those kinds of factors went into my uh, head. But again, it's, for me, it was about the weight. You know, body armor, I had, what, 30 pounds or something? Helmet, another 10, 15 pounds. And that was, I needed that to carry water. So. In terms of being psychologically ready, I, I think for me, it was, it was such a long shot to get the embed when I first was approached the military they kind of they didn't blow me off but they just didn't get back to me um and then I, I i showed up and showed them a trailer and they got interested in the story but i had this frank conversation they're like usually we'd blow someone like you off because you don't have we're not confident that you're gonna like finish this thing you're just like a a dude making a movie um so it, it like didn't get real until i like bought my ticket and was packing and a friend called me and his friend's girlfriend had just been kidnapped in Kabul. This was like two days before I flew to Kabul. And it just, you know, I feel like in my head there's like the possibility of getting blown up and like losing a leg. And that would be horrible, but it would be quick. And, you'd know, you know, you'd know the damage. But like being kidnapped, like this woman was grabbed and like marched into the desert. I mean, just the psychological sort of terror of that I can't kind of imagine. So it got real. <laughs> Um, but it was too late. I already bought my ticket. So, so, um, and yeah, I mean, I had to carry everything and I had to have body armor and I ended up taking a really kind of dinky tripod because I just couldn't, I couldn't carry like a big one. I took like a, a monopod. Um, I took some lenses. Um, and ultimately because I was mostly in the vehicles, that was fine. Um, the, it was pretty difficult. I ended up shooting out the windows a lot, and um, yeah, I, I had a pretty simple cat. I was shooting on the 70 at that point. Um, I took some like Zeiss prime lenses, and yeah. I have to say, it's amazing that you guys shot on the 5D and 7D because the films both look gorgeous. You know, I think now you know camera tech has has advanced. We you know film school got our start sort of on the back of the DSLR revolution and you know all that stuff still holds up all that gear still holds up yeah I mean I think they're all you know when it's when you're talking gear it's they're just tools you know so uh, I think what we're really talking about is how do you make these newer smaller maybe cruder tools have that cinematic feel that's what we're used to these larger cameras or these film cameras and I think it's just about, you know, it's it's the, the components of it, you know, and playing to the camera strong suits where, you know, while these tiny DSLRs can record this beautiful video, 
they're horrible in terms of stabilization. So you have to start really thinking about that, whether it's throwing it on sticks or a monopod or I use a glide cam for a lot of stuff. Uh, and then if you're off either one of those, it's it, it becomes an issue or that, that shakiness will, at least from my perspective, potentially take your viewer out of that, that reality you're trying to create. But uh, cameras are getting even smaller now, you know? Right. People are making movies with GoPros and now I'm shooting with a Sony A7, so that's even tinier, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would say in some ways for me, shooting with a DSLR was kind of an advantage because it's less um, smaller. Like some people assumed I was just taking stills and there, there was an advantage to like not having the big, you know, I've been shooting with the FS7 a lot and like that's like a camera you notice and looks professional and there's, yeah, I feel like there were some situations where it was just an advantage to, to be less conspicuous. And people seem to be more familiarized with these, like, you know, like you're saying, it, you're less obtrusive, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, so people will act more naturally. I hear that in a lot of uh, doc situations, not just, you know, such intensive ones. Just, you know, even if you're one-on-one with a subject in their bedroom, maybe you don't want a big shoulder mount and, you know, everything else. Even here in this room, if we were videotaping this, right. the difference between a, a giant FS7 or a little... A7S, you know? Yeah, it's for like, sure. It amounts to sweat. <laughs> you sweat less. <laughs> um, so so you you both, you were coming at these from two very different places. I mean, you know, Daniel had a whole photojournalistic background. Um, and Nathan, you kind of were walking in like, wow, this is my first situation like this. But either way, I'm wondering, Daniel, you might not even remember at this point, like, we're... Did it end up feeling more or less sort of intense on the ground than you expected? In terms of this being my first time. Well, well really... like in terms of shooting in, a, you know, when you when we say shooting in a war zone, you know, I'm sure all sorts of images come up in your minds. And here's Nathan, you know, shipping out to Afghanistan after just finding out his friend's girlfriend had been kidnapped. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety. And then, you know, once <laughs> you're there, did it sort of feel like, oh, this is chiller than I expected, or it's like, oh, this is actually way scarier than I expected. Like, how did it meet your expectations? I, I, I found it to be much more difficult than I initially anticipated, you know. So it, this film began as a, a still story in, in 2008-9, and just by, by way of necessity and, and where I was heading as a storyteller, it transitioned into this film. So for me, the real learning curve was like, how do I use, how do I shoot video, you know? And, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that that's always ringing through my head is I, I had the great opportunity about a year into starting uh, filming, we had brought my editor on board, Elise Ardell Spiegel, who was a godsend. And, and I had her, like, I'd send footage back and she'd just rip it apart and whip me and say, you know, like, that's not 30 seconds. That's like five seconds. Because in your mind, things are racing so much faster. And so I, I was fortunate to have this guide to kind of like help me technically and make sure I was I was getting the material she needed. So like originally you weren't holding your shots long enough. Things like that. I mean, it's I, I wouldn't blanket statement, statement it with that. But it was, for me, the intimidation and the frustration was localized to, to using the equipment and, and transitioning from a photographer to a videographer. So uh, so that kind of like took away a lot of the edge. Uh, and then also, you know, in, in a lot of the combat situations, I think for me, uh, 
just focusing on on the work and being able to focus on the frames and you know while all this stuff is going on around you uh, at the end of the day it's you have that that frame in front of you that can kind of absorb a lot of that that uh nervous energy or, or fear or things like that yeah i mean i actually my island soldier started off as a photo story i shot like a photo essay for a, a magazine in the pacific that i think is gone now but i also was learning how to shoot video as you know in the process of doing this um and yeah i mean i think i think when i first got over to afghanistan i just worked so hard to to get that access i was just like really stoked to be there and like really wanted to be out on patrol and get something like you go all the way there you want you know you want something and you don't want anyone to be hurt but you you know want to see some action yeah um and i think you know because I already had a relationship with some of the soldiers there, I think the troops were a little more open to me, and I think they were also surprised that I kept on wanting to go on patrol with them, and I, I think they kind of developed a little bit of respect because they're, they're like, some journalists just come and like want to hang out on the FOB and don't want to like go out and get blown up. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, I think the Island Soldier was workshopped in the Brooklyn Filmmakers Collective over the last couple of years, and that community has been really helpful, especially coming from a still, more of a still background, just to have like a lot of really thoughtful filmmakers. Um, the way that the group works is we get together once a week and workshop a couple of projects. So I started like workshopping sample scenes, and then had an hour-long cut I made, and then uh, Brian Chang, who came on to edit and produce is in that group also and saw it and got involved and that's kind of how the final film got made. So a lot of collaboration and we're talking about the emotional lead up and, you know, then being there and kind of just getting your bearings and shooting. But then it comes, you know, it comes down to it. You each had had some pretty intense things happen um, and some scary things that probably only would happen in a conflict oriented film. So, Dan, you talked a little bit about like, well, you know, you've got the camera to focus on and, you know, you can focus your energy. But still, how do you keep your cool when something's happening, like you're faced with a potential IED or there are, you know, bombs flying overhead and everybody's ducking for cover? I don't think you keep your cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's a strange thing, or at least for me, it's a strange thing where, you know, it's to go out into these places, there's this mixture of, you know, I'm very honest with myself in terms of why I want to do these things. I want to do these things primarily for myself. It's a selfish-based reality that I'm living, and it's it's this storytelling and these stories that I can kind of bring to the world that uh, that kind of justify that to a degree. So approaching it from that perspective, you know, what for me, you know, you're out there and then you're you're second guessing yourself. You're like, oh, what did I just get myself into? Maybe I bit off more than I can chew. And and more often than not, uh, in the types of combat situations that I was involved in, by the time it's happening, it's far too late to make any kind of second decisions. So that that kind of really helped a lot of things along where, you know, when you're in it, then it's at that point, and, and I've had some experience with conflict over the last decade. So, uh, so then it's just like, all right, now, now it's time to work, you know, focus on your frames, stay, just keep your head on a swivel, stay low, don't get killed. And, you know, your body does a good job at, at 
helping you out with those things. It's not like you're having a, or at least depends on the person, I suppose. But all the panic attacks would come like after I got back home, you know, not out there. It was just, you know, I guess adrenaline or good times. Can you think of any specific examples, times where you were like, oh, shit? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, I had a lot of close calls over the months that I was covering, you know, uh, at one point, uh, you know, high velocity rounds, knocking cameras out of your hands and, and, and a lot of mortar fire, a lot of like getting little pepperings from mortar rounds and, and, uh, and then just the people you're brushing up against, you know, the, I think the, the more freaky part for me was less the things that I couldn't really predict, like, uh like uh, projectiles, but more about the men around me, which are intoxicated and psychopathic criminals. So, I mean, while I was with a, a group of what I would call my friends, I was in an army of criminals. So that all those things kind of, they all, you know, it's a goulash. I mean, I, I would I would really agree with Daniel's point. I mean, I think for me, when I have a camera, I go into a different space and I'm not it's not that I'm not thinking, but I'm just thinking differently, and I'm. It's a weird thing, and it's like hard to describe, but it's. It's kind of empowering in a way because you're. I'm just like thinking about the frame and the composition and like what I'm going to do next. It's kind of like, I was really into skateboarding. That was my life for a long time. And what I really liked about skateboarding is you can't think about anything else. You just have to think about the next trick you're going to do and the next obstacle. And I feel like when I'm. Shooting, especially in an environment like that, you just are thinking so fast and trying to, to figure out what, what you're going to do that you don't – I don't have time to really think too much. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, there were there were different – there were scary moments. There were, there were scary moments that weren't in a war zone. I mean, there was – I filmed a funeral um, back in Micronesia, and, you know, the whole island came together for the, the funeral of the soldier who had been killed in Afghanistan, and – I was, I'd been invited there, but I sort of have the shot. I was like over the casket as it's being lowered. And I don't know, I was, it was, it, I, I was accepted, but I, I didn't want to push too much in this like, this moment of grief. It was an interesting moment of sort of balancing access, the access that I had, but not wanting to like push too far or violate kind of the trust that I had gained. And so I feel like that, that's scary in a different way, just tr- knowing your limits and what, what you can get. And then there were, like, scary things like like rocket attacks on the base or um, I think I wrote about it a little bit in the thing. But when I'd go out on patrol, they would give me headphones to listen to the conversation. And when the soldiers were scared and I could hear that in their voice, then I was like, wow, you know, I should be terrified. <laughs> These guys have been here for, like, eight months. They've all been blown up. They all know what's up. So if, like, today... It's scary for them, then I, I should be scared. And yet somehow you, you maintained your cool. Kind of. <laughs> well, you got. I really like your point about like it's sometimes those quiet times when you don't have the distractions or you don't have that fear or adrenaline or whatever it is, those moments of grief where you're then questioning your own morality and and the morality of of what you're doing. And especially when you're among people you care about, then it becomes so much more internalized and that's that becomes uh, pretty impactful, I think, versus what I think the viewers would typically think like, oh, this is the real scary part. It's like, no, I don't even remember that. 
Right. I think <clears throat> that's true also of any doc is that the audience just could, could never appreciate how much time you've spent with these people. And it's actually a great segue because, again, related to the specific topic, any of your subjects are, you know, potentially going to be hurt or killed. And so while on one hand you need to become close with them and 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 get, you know, get each other's trust and that kind of thing, on the other hand, it seems like you have to have some sort of distance enough to, like, protect your own heart if these people are in danger, which I don't want to give any spoilers away, but they really are in your in your projects. So mm. can you talk a little bit about, about that balance and what it's like to either lose or, um, you know, witness the, the damage to someone you've been spending time with? Uh, you know, I never really prepared myself for that. Uh, and... I think it's it's a really good question because uh, in hindsight, when, when you're working on projects or in environments or with people uh, and your work kind of crosses that line and, and you're in their lives and, and their lives are on the line. So sure, of course, people can get hurt. People could maybe get killed. Uh, but I never really, you know, I never thought about that, I guess. And, and then when things do happen... You know, I think there's a degree of grief and guilt. And I mean, I, I think it's like anybody would experience, regardless of whether you're making a film or you just know somebody. I mean, I think you'll go through those those things, but it becomes a bit more amplified when, when you're kind of a vulture in their life, so to speak. Uh, so that's, that's a difficult emotional juggling act uh, that I'm, I, I, I don't have any advice. It's, it's tricky. I think for me, it's like the camera is already to some degree creating like a barrier. Like, you know, you're with this person, but you're not like hanging out and talking. You're like filming them. So I think my approach is in general is to try to get emotionally close to subjects just so that, I mean, I mean, the projects I do tend to be about people I'm interested in as people. And in that regard, I think developing some sort of intimacy and, and, uh, you know, relationship is helpful so that they feel comfortable to talk to you and like let you into their lives. Um, but I do, I do feel that, you know, it becomes hard when it's like you're straddling. It is a relationship between a filmmaker and a subject. Um, but you need to be able to, to do your job. You need to be able to film. And one of the things that was actually really hard when I started making this film and I went back to Micronesia to shoot for the first time was that people would always try to feed me. And like culturally, you know, you should eat. That's like being polite. But I'm like, no, I'm here with a camera. I'm like, I'm like filming, but I'm like having this, you know, battle because I know like I'm sort of like not being respectful by, by just showing up and shooting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a juggling act for sure. And, you know, how can you not get personally invested? I mean, it's for these types of films, the whole game is to, to break down those barriers. And, and you have to really do it. You can't fake that, you know. And the people on the other side of the lens, they can feel that. It has to be real. If it's not, it, it'll, it'll, you'll see it mm-hmm. and you'll feel it. So, uh, you know, it's just a vulnerability that, that I think is required in the, in the process. 
Right. It, in order for the audiences to connect with the characters, they're sort of you're the conduit for their connection. And for and for us to connect with them, because, you know, it's it's not as if you know the ending of the film while you're in there filming it. So there's this strange leap of faith that you're kind of in a free fall. Um, uh, so the only real things you can grab onto are are these things, are these connections you can make with these characters. Sometimes they're connections, real connections that you want to establish that trust. Other times there is no trust uh, in that connection, but that itself is the connection. So and it and it comes across. Mm-hmm. You know, I have characters in my film where you can feel that that trust and that how that access is created. But then there's other characters in my film where you're like, man, I don't know if I could trust this dude. Well, there you are. <laughs> right. Um, so we talked about, you know, the prep and then embedding in and then being there. But I think similar to what soldiers go through, you then have to come back. And again, this this applies to any doc. You immerse yourself in some world and then you come back to your world and there's like a strange disconnect. But I imagine in the conflict oriented film, especially with something like the Congo, where, as you said, it's so undercovered. People here in your daily life probably don't even have any idea what you saw or went through. So what's the what's the re-immersion process like coming back after a shoot and getting into the post? Lots of beer. No. Um, it's it's tricky, you know. I mean, I think it depends on how long you're you're out there and what, what you're doing with those personal relationships that you have to re-identify with when you come home. So it's... Uh, you know, especially with friends and family, you you almost feed off of what you think they're thinking. So when you come back, you'll sometimes you'll be treated. Or I found in certain times I'm being handled with white gloves, which would almost make things a lot worse when I wasn't feeling that way. But then I do begin to feel that way, and you know, it's an emotional roller coaster. And and again, it's like well, you could have certain degrees of experience uh, with with danger or or conflict or whatever, you know, it's always personal. So like, you never know how it's going to feel, you know, you never know uh, what, what something will do to you until it happens. So, I mean, I I feel like I handled it pretty, pretty well, but I've got a really strong uh, group of friends and family that were always there to, to kind of help pick me back up. So. And then I guess I'm like a soldier, you know, I'm just thinking aloud, but in the end, you have this document. You have this documentary to share with the world to sort of experience what you experienced, whereas a soldier doesn't necessarily have that documentation of their experience out there. I was just going to say, I feel like for Island Soldier, I none of the shoots were that long. I, I don't think I embedded for the length of time that you were over there shooting. I would go for a couple weeks at a time. Um, but I think actually you're talking about <clears throat> like the soldier experience coming back from war and I think th- the closest thing I felt to that was coming back after the Peace Corps after two years living like really immersed in another culture and it was just like totally different way of living people sort of like prioritized community way over like work and personal kind of ambitions and I think that that I was talking to a veteran a couple days ago and he was saying that that having gone through that experience that's probably a good way to kind of approach thinking about the veteran experience because it's such an immersive, um, intense period. And in some ways, like the film coming back from the shoots has been great. I mean, come back and like get to, to work on this film, but coming back from that was a little like depressing and traumatic to come back to America. 
for me. Well, you know, any change, it's like the other day I, I have this ring I wear and I'll take it off in the shower sometimes or whatever. But then when it's not on, you, you notice it and then you almost keep pawing it or you paw where it was and it's, it's always on your mind. So it's kind of like that. I, I think maybe it's tricky. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think like anything we do, if you ride the subway every day and then all of a sudden you're riding a bicycle and you're in a different, you know, it's yeah. it's weird. Or Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, for for me, I was, and, and as you're saying, it's like you're, you're focused on this project, you know. You're, you're out there making a film. It's, it's to some end. Uh, but then I think where it, be, it probably, uh, from colleagues of mine that I've spoken with, I think where it really starts to get tricky is where you don't have that. So for, for photographers or, or soldiers specifically where you're not really in control of that, I think that's where it's probably a little harder to, to keep that footing on, on uh, where, where you're going to let yourself emotionally kind of slide to. Sure. <clears throat> Conflict or not. I mean, that's another thing you hear from doc filmmakers a lot. It's like, you know, I've spent three years doing this thing and it's become my whole life and my whole identity. And now, like, now who am I yeah. kind of a thing? That's just like a, a common experience. Um, so finally, you know, we are no film school and it's all about kind of we're speaking to other filmmakers and we always ask about advice. And you, you guys have a specialized sort of area now. So so what advice do you have for anyone who might be considering a, a conflict-oriented film or a film that has where they know they'll end up in some sort of conflict zone at some point? Uh, I have like two bits of advice. Uh, in terms of just making films or, or trying to challenge yourself to, to tell stories, my advice would be like run as fast as you can into failure because uh if if you don't have that or if you if and i'm speaking from my own personal experience it's you need to to fail in order to figure out where you're going in a sense so i think a lot of people are afraid of failure but in reality that's kind of the most important thing in in my mind like when things fall apart that's when you have a great foundation to build upon uh in terms of conflict it's about being smart. I mean, I think a lot of people will go charging uh, into these situations, especially now and especially in, in our country, you know, where we're, we're kind of getting real used to conflict on a cultural level. Uh, we see it not only overseas, we see it here at home. So uh, being smart about it, that's that's it because I think uh, – and, and I've seen people in the field where uh, – they realize they bit off more than they can chew, and then they become a, a problem, a danger for everyone else around them. So, uh, so I think really, really knowing what you want to do before you go and do it is uh, is the best advice. Um, in terms of advice, I mean, I think my film was predicated on on a very specific place that I had a relationship with and I had access and the funding that we have gotten for the film has largely been through grants and funding specifically for Pacific Islands that I, you know, I feel like you can apply for all these huge, you know, grants, but, but in my experience, like having a very specific story and then finding these, these smaller organizations has been a much easier way to kind of get moving. And, it's been the kind of thing where, you know, started using my own money and then was able to get, you know, a $10,000 
Grant to do a shoot and sort of like cobbled it together. But I, I guess I would just say um, I would advise filmmakers who are looking for funding to to sort of like draw on their life experience and figure out like relationships or like stories that they have some connection to versus um, just finding a story that sounds sexy and like buying a plane ticket. I just feel like that's that's not the way I I work and I know some people do work that way. But um, and yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like Island Soldier is about war and some of it does take place in war zones, but it's also about the impacts of America's wars far from America. And I think, you know, sometimes a story isn't on the front line. Sometimes a story is somewhere else where, where you know, where where war, the, the implications of war might be less visible and less obvious, but no less impactful and, and meaningful. So maybe look, you know, look for stories that aren't, I don't think it needs to be in a war zone to, to sort of be a reflection of war if that's your in, interest in like the impacts of war, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> and just in terms of practical sort of advice, I think of this because, as Nathan mentioned, he wrote a post for No Film School about preparing for this type of shoot. And Nathan, you had mentioned like there are some organizations that people can reach out to to get a little bit of training and just like being smart, having the smarts that Daniel talked about, like street smart in a conflict way. Can you talk a little bit about that more brass tacks type of uh, advice? I mean, I, I wrote that in the post as advice. I didn't do it. I, <laughs> I didn't have time to, to, to do the training. I had applied for the risk, I believe, that Sebastian Younger has. Yeah, I've taken risk. You've taken it. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's definitely worth worth taking a risk course. It's a phenomenal program. It helps uh, save lives. It, what is that? Uh, risk is a, a program that uh, that Sebastian Younger had set up with a, with a group of people uh, in the wake of Tim Hetherington's death. Uh, and, and the aim is to, to train other journalists in the field uh, with the skills to save other journalists' lives. So uh, had that happen, perhaps uh, Tim, Tim would still be with us today. But, uh, but I think uh, these kinds of programs are, are super helpful because it's not only does it give you these, uh, these skills, but it's, it's a traumatic course to take. And it really puts your your head in the game, thinking about very real things that can happen in in these types of areas. Yeah, I mean, for me, I got the news that I was embedding, and I I had a couple weeks, and so I just scrambled. I I read as much as I could online. I reached out to to people like you who, had, you know, were experienced working in uh, combat zones, and you know, I think that's that was something I felt bad going into the embed knowing like I had bought like a, a tourniquet like medical kit but I wasn't really prepared to you know if someone next to me had been shot I, I wasn't really prepared to help them and I feel like it would be good to go into those situations knowing how to to protect yourself but also you know if you can save someone else's life like that's um, a good thing obviously well, I appreciate both, you know, the candor from each of you. I mean, you do have to learn as you go. So this point of even having conversations like this is that we're, you know, you're able to now share some of what you learned along the way, what you might have done differently. Um, it's very, very valuable. Uh, so congratulations on both films. Is there anything else you want to add or you think our listeners should know about? Don't go to film school. <laughs> that's a good one. I think it's a, the given of yeah. this program. No, I think it covered everything. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing the progress of the films and, and what you're up to next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in the risk training we discussed, you can learn more at risktraining.org. That's R-I-S-C training.org. You can also hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes. Make sure to subscribe there or on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Also, be sure to visit nofilmschool.com for useful new articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you on Thursday.